Welcome to Sunshine Graces with Podcast Nun. My name is Sister Ave Clark. I am a Dominican sister from New York. I am happy you can join me today. Hello, everybody. Today is Everyday Grace Podcast with Podcast Nun. And today I'm going to introduce to you Sister Ruth Lab, another Amityville Dominican sister. Sister Ruth, I'd like the people who are listening today to know a little bit something about you. So what would you like to share with them? I am, as you said, a sister of St. Dominic. I live currently in um, St. Fidelis Parish in College Point, Queens. And I, I want to say when it comes to ministry, I have a couple of of passions. Um, and I, one is certainly the law. I, I graduated from NYU Law School. I, you know, I love being a lawyer, but, you know, that's going to be the focus of this talk. But I, I really did want to say just a couple of words about my other passion, which is working with the homeless, because I do this too, and I've been doing it pretty much all of my adult life, running shelters, and I am currently kind of the um, coordinator of uh, homeless uh, programs at at St. Fidelis and recently started a street outreach that that has been a wonderful experience. Um, We had a shelter there for a couple of years. It couldn't continue. Then I started bringing uh, parishioners to the Bowery Mission, which was an exceptional experience, but the pandemic kind of put an end to that. very much and I'm sure we'll have Sister Ruth another time to talk especially about that homeless ministry but today and this is very extraordinary for some of you listening you're probably saying what a sister is a lawyer yes Sister Ruth is a lawyer so I'd like to ask you Ruth what led you to pursue law as a career and vocation You know, when Sister Ruth said, it comes naturally to me, as I was listening to her folks, I was thinking, a law, usually law, you want to make things right. And that's the way Sister Ruth is in life. She likes to make things right for people. That's how I see her. Now, Ruth, what type of law practice have you pursued and maybe have a favorite one and why? many different types of litigation, but always, it's always 
litigation. But honestly, what I'm doing now is without any competition, um, uh, my, my favorite um, uh, practice. Um, it, it's, it's just extraordinary, and um, I am happy to tell you all about it. Well, I think that might lead right into the next question, which is, you had done amnesty cases. Can you explain that and why you uh, like it? Uh, I'm sorry, I cut you off before you finished your question. Oh, can you explain to the people what amnesty is and the cases that you do and why you like to do that? I, I, I would love to. Um, it, it's, a, it's actually, it's not an amnesty, it's asylum. Um, so it's, it sounds the same. <laughs> but, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, it's, it's, that's okay. It's asylum law. And um, just, um, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of explain this. You know, I could talk about this for hours. I know we don't have hours. Um, so I'll try to be as brief as I can, but still, still give folks an understanding of, of what asylum is and, and how the practice works. Um, because a lot of people actually have some misunderstandings about what asylum law is. As, uh, asylum is, it, is a very specific and, and, and narrow exception, actually, to, to immigration law. Um, it, it's, it's based on um, the 1951 Refugee Convention and then the 67 Protocols. These are international treaties. So our asylum law, just like the asylum law in every other country, is based on international law. And the way this 1951 Refugee Convention, which again, it's just a fancy word for an international treaty that countries signed on to, it grew out of the concern um, after World War II where there were literally millions and millions of people after this um, war who could not return to their homelands because they were going to be terribly persecuted and possibly killed um, if, if they went back there by their own governments or with the blessing of their own government. I'll do a couple of examples. If, if you were an ethnic German um, whose homeland had been, let's say, in Poland or Czechoslovakia, you could not return home. You, you would be killed because of what the, the Nazis had done in Poland and Czechoslovakia and everywhere else. Um, there were hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians and Estonians and Latvians and Croatians who, if they went to their homeland, they would face reprisals for wartime collaboration. So they fled all, mostly they went, you know, they came from Eastern Europe, they fled westward, most of them hoping to go to North America. Hundreds of thousands of Jews who had survived Nazi genocide found themselves terribly persecuted when they went home to, to their home country. So the, the international community realized that this is a real problem and we have to enter into some kind of treaty to make it relatively easy or at least easier to facilitate these people without any judgment on their behavior. It isn't were they good people, were they bad people. They were, but they were people. They were human beings who were going to be persecuted in their homeland. And the international community said we have to facilitate their 
going somewhere else and finding new homes. Um, and then in the years that followed, the international community realized this is not something unique to, to the aftermath of World War II. This goes on in the world all the time. So in 1967, they expanded that treaty um, in terms of time. So our own asylum law, um, which is federal law, um, is, is based entirely on this 1951 Refugee Convention. Um, and basically what it does is it provides that any, any individuals who are unwilling or unable to return to their country of origin, you know, the place where, where, where they grew up, where they're citizens, because they have suffered persecution, and that's a key word, in the past, or if they haven't suffered persecution, if they can show what we call a well-founded fear of persecution in the future, um, if they go home to their homeland. This persecution, however, has to be based on one of five things. Their race, their religion, their nationality, their political opinion, or something called a particular social group. Um, and the, the best way uh, that I can explain that is think of things like LGBTQ. You know, if you're gay, that would put you in a particular social group. Um, so uh, let's say you are a, just for an, you know, uh, an example, um, you, you are a well-known or even a not well-known opponent of your country's government, um, and, and you've been persecuted for it. You're a candidate for asylum because you have suffered persecution in the past, or you can show that you have a well-founded fear of being persecuted in the future because of your political opinion, you know, or, or you practice a religion um, and the majority religion in your country is something else and people with your religion, you know, get persecuted, killed, beaten, tortured, whatever. So the persecution that you're worried about has to be based on one of those five categories. And the other thing um, is that the persecutor has to pretty much has to be the government of your home country. Um, if it's not the government, if it's a private actor um, that has persecuted you or, or that probably will persecute you, you have to be willing to show that the government um, is in some way complicit. They, they don't care that you're being persecuted. They know about it and they say that's your problem. They're going along with the persecution. So you, you need some kind of connection um, to the government. So th th that's what our asylum law is. And these are the, the most fundamental aspects of, of our asylum law. And they really can't be changed because, as I said, our asylum law is based on international law, on this convention that was entered into in 1951. Mm. Let me tell you what asylum law is not, just to clarify this, because I think this is where a lot of confusion comes in. Um, it is not about providing a safe haven for people who are fleeing poverty or general political instability.
criminality or crime in their country. That they may well be able to come to the United States under other immigration laws and procedure, but, but asylum does not apply to them. Um, and I think that's misunderstood a lot. And in terms of my own practice, because I have, um, when I started uh, practicing asylum law, I had a, a very long and, and, and solid uh, training as a litigator and in trial law, I only do trials. My clients, uh, I work what's called of counsel to a small immigration firm, um, meaning I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like a partner, but not really. I'm really an independent contractor. And I take cases from them that, um, that, have, that have been denied. They're, all of my clients have applied for asylum and they were denied by an asylum officer, you know, who works for the government. They were told, no, you know, you don't meet the criteria, and they are now in deportation proceedings, but they're entitled to a trial. And so I pick these cases up and take them to trial. So, so that's kind of a, a brief introduction to what asylum law is. Um, my my part of, of the practice. That is wonderful, Ruth. And as we're all listening, myself too, I was listening very deeply to this, and I thought asylum law made me think of the word compassion, that, that we're, we're showing compassion through the law. So again, I know I've shared with you and you share with me some cases that you won. When you win a case for someone, Ruth, what is your feeling? I know the people are jubilant. What is your feeling when you win a case for someone else? Honestly, Ava, even as you ask that question, I'm starting to cry a little bit. It is, uh, it, it, it's really, it, it's very difficult. It's such a profound feeling. It's very difficult um, to describe. First of all, my, my clients, uh, their, their initial reaction is not, is not that they're jubilant. I have never had... Uh, so far, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say I've won all of my cases. Um, uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure that won't last because um, the uh, nationally, what we call the win rate is about 40%. So I will not be able to keep up 100% mm -hmm. indefinitely, although maybe I will. I, I certainly uh, we'll hope We'll reach on with prayers. Um, right, please, you know, please God. Um, but... Uh, there has never been a case where my client did not immediately break down into tears, and literally immediately. The, the judge, these trials are fast. They don't go on for days. They only go on for hours. They're in front of a judge, not a jury, because it's too technical. It's not something that a jury would, would uh, be able to, you know, to, to understand and, and rule on. And the other side, uh, you know, the lawyer on the other side is from the Department of Homeland Security. So I've got my client, I've got whatever witnesses we have, I have whatever documents we have, and the lawyer for the, uh, you know, the Homeland Security lawyer um, does not have witnesses, they just cross-examine um, my client and all of our other witnesses, including my expert witness. And then it's over. And the judge makes up his or her mind right then and there, uh, strictly applying, you know, 
of the law to what they have learned about the facts. And um, they give you an indication right before they, they read their ruling so that, so that if whichever side is losing can be prepared to, um, uh, we call it, reserve an appeal. Um, so that if you lose, you can take it to, to the, uh, the Board of Immigration Appeals. Um, so, uh, and then they just read the ruling into the record. And um, my clients frequently, do, you know, the, the judge is talking legalese, so the client doesn't understand. So I always, if they are seated next to me at counsel table, I just, I just write, write a note saying we just won. Um, if they're behind me because I've had, I have another witness next to me, I just turn around, I give them a little thumbs up. I, I indicate to them that, that they've won. I would say 90% of the time they break down into tears in the courtroom, um, and the other 10% of the time they break down into tears the moment we step out of the courtroom. These are people who have been living with the, the it, it's more than fear, the terror of being returned to a place where they something bad was going to happen to them. They're going to be arrested. Uh, some of them have been tortured. Um, you know, they've been living with this fear, you know, for years before, before it came to trial. And the pent-up emotion, the pent-up anxiety, um, and the overwhelming relief, um, you know, it's, they can no longer contain it. I, I had one client, I'll tell you briefly about this and it will give you an idea of, of, of what they go through. Um, th th this man was actually not, not the, what we call, we call them the respondent, the person applying for asylum who's been denied, but, but the husband. Um, of the person applying, and they they get asylum to um, we call them derivatives, and they were actually being persecuted because of 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 the husband. Um, this was a couple uh, from Ukraine, but the husband came from Iran, and he had been you know there's a, you know there's a lot of racism in a lot of these countries, and so. Um, He'd been subject to racism and, you know, um, for years living in Ukraine, but it wasn't until 2014 when the Ukrainian war with Russia began that nationalism kind of really took off in the Ukraine. And then it became outright real persecution. Um, they had a business that was destroyed, you know, all the time by people. They would call the police and the police would say, get out of our country. We don't want you here. And, and I, I'm not saying what they would really say. I'm putting it in nice terms. Mm -hmm. They were beaten up on the street, um, it, it, you know, and again, if they would call the police, the police would say, um, it, you know, they would do something even worse to them. So um, my, and my client had, the, the sad thing, her husband had fled Iran um, because he was being persecuted there because he was up in political opposition, you know, to, to, to the, uh, the Ayatollah there. When, when he was waiting outside the courtroom, the, his 
wife broke down when we because you can't you can't have witnesses. You can only have one person in the courtroom testifying. The judge wants everyone else waiting outside so they don't hear what other people are saying. Um, we went outside. The wife is crying, um, and uh, so I said to her husband, "We we won. It's over." You know, which is something I frequently say. It's over. You're safe. It's over. Welcome home. Um, and the husband broke down, and he said, I have a home for the first time in I don't know how many years. You know, Ruth, as you shared that, you said before you had tears, I did now, and I think anybody listening now is, we have to say to ourselves, what we are born into, aren't we blessed in our country? And we should be beyond grateful for what we have. But also when we hear these stories of true people like you were sharing today, we realize that we have to be supportive and we have to understand, like you just explained to people what asylum means. So my next question goes along with that. As a lawyer, what does justice mean to you? That is a great question. Um, because you have to understand, our laws are not perfect justice. You, you, you know, you don't get perfect justice in, in any court of law, including our courts of law. And as a lawyer, you're not, you, that, that's not your job and it's not really what you're looking for necessarily. We, we, have, we have just laws, we have some unjust laws, we have imperfect laws. My my job um, as as an attorney um, and what I'm ethically bound to do um, is is to represent my client's interest as best I can. That's what a lawyer does. Um, uh, we call it, uh, and it's in the ethical rules. We have to represent our clients zealously, whether they're right or wrong. Whether, whether their winning would be just or unjust. You see, it's not an individual lawyer's job to get justice. Because the, the way this works, I, I represent my client zealously. And the lawyer on the other side has to do, who has the same job but for the other side, also has to represent his or her client zealously. And then there's a fine, and, and we present our, our, our witnesses, we present the facts as, as, as our clients and our witnesses see them. And then there's a finder of fact who's a, a judge or a jury, and there's also a judge who, who um, applies the law. And out of that whole system, we hope that justice arises. And I will be very honest and say that it's, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't always, but, but, but that is the hope. And what, what is so important and what I have come to, oh, like, I mean, I'm not going to use the word worship, you know, but, but, but value so deeply is that we are a country of laws, and most people don't understand the importance of that. My clients come from countries which don't run on the rule of law. Everything's corrupt, everything's a bribe, law doesn't mean anything. So, but here you can count on the rule of law. And that is a phenomenal thing. So 
sense, you know, beyond representing whatever client we're representing at the moment, is, is preserving our constitutional republic, you know, the right of law, the rights of, of people um, as they've been handed down, I guess, starting with the Magna Carta, right, to the Declaration of Independence, to the Constitution. That, that's our burden, and, 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 and it's the privilege of, of a lawyer to, to defend those rights. Um, and, and I think it's as close to justice as you can get, but, but it's, not, it's never perfect justice. Well, none of us are perfect here, but as you said, we look to law and order, and I was thinking we also look for respect and justice and comfort for people. So as you've explained this, we certainly, everybody listening today, I know I've learned a lot. So I ask you, Ruth, personally, what have you learned about yourself as a lawyer? Um, I'll tell you what I've, what, what I've learned, and it relates, um, you're talking about comfort, um, and I, I'll tell you just a very brief story about that. I've learned that I'm strong, I've learned that when I need to be tough, I can be tough, and I've learned that I that I can actually be a force to be reckoned with in and out of the courtroom, and I can use all of those attributes to help people to come. Because you're right. What 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 is why why am I doing this? I mean, yeah, I like being a lawyer. I you know it's but but. As a religious sister, why am I doing this? I'm doing it in the in the practice of asylum law to, to defend people who have nowhere else to turn, who are desperate, who've been um, persecuted, in some cases tortured. But there are other opportunities to help people um, that I get to do all the time as an attorney, and you know, um, you know, kind of on the side, I do a lot of pro bono work. It, informally for people in the parish, not in the parish. I, I currently have um, a friend that I'm helping. She's She happens to be a Lutheran minister. Um, she had a very terrible year with COVID. Her husband died and she's heartbroken and she needs to sell their co-op, um, you know, cooperative apartment that they lived in so that she can go back home where her family is. Um, she's just too heartbroken to stay here. And the co-op board, um, you know, is saying, well, you can't sell the apartment before you do this, this, and that, which was going to cost her a lot of money. And she didn't think it was fair. She didn't think it was right. And she complained to them. And, you know, they, they didn't even talk to her. And she was telling me about this, and I thought, you know, I, I don't practice real estate law. I really don't know anything about this, but, but I'll, 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 I'll look at it, and I'll look at the documents, and I'll do the research, and I'll be your lawyer, you know. Um, I'm your friend. Uh, I'll, you know, I'll take care of this, and um, I am taking care of it. And it's, it's, it's a, a wonderful feeling to be able to turn to someone who who doesn't have a way of defending themselves and say, I'll handle this for you. And then to actually be able to follow through on that, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. to have, you know, it's wonderful to have uh, good intentions, but 
one of the really great things, I'll never forget, I went to NYU Law School, and our dean at the time um, was John Sexton, and um, a man of great faith, by the way, and um, the, one of the very first things he said to us on our very first day when we were all, you know, scared out of our wits and we were gathered, um, you know, in, uh, you know, it was like opening day, you know, they're, you know, talking to us and stuff. And he said, you've been empowered. Use it to make this world a better place. And that's the wonderful thing about being a lawyer and a religious sister. Well, I use your talents to hopefully make the world a little bit of a better place. Well, Sister Ruth is certainly doing that. Our community, we say, to be signs of joy and hope. And you certainly are that as a sister and as a lawyer, Ruth. So our final question for Sister Ruth today, what is a gift justice gives to every human heart in the world? Like justice is a sense of peace. So what is this gift that this peace gives to every human heart and spirit in our country and world? lot and I think whenever a person, any person gets to you know, you know the phrase do the right thing, gets to do the right thing, um, it lifts that person's heart up because they understand that in some way they are lifting the whole world up by a little just a little bit, I like to think. On, on, you know, kind of the, the, the evolutionary ladder of um, salvation. And um, I'll tell you, I feel like I get to do this when I practice asylum law. When I started practicing asylum law and when I started winning my cases and seeing what that meant to my clients and their lives, um, and their families. I was never so proud to be an American. I was never so proud to be a lawyer. And I was never so proud to be an Amityville Dominican. I, I make it clear, um, by the way, um, at my trials, the judges all know I'm a sister. I wear my Dominican cross. And when, at, at, at the beginning of, of every court appearance, you have to, we call it, read your appearance into the record and um you know i always uh use my title sister so um uh you know like like every other other person certainly like every other sister in our community i am simply someone um trying to use um their gifts and their talents to bring about the kingdom that's what we all do. Well, today I'd like to say to all of you listening, we certainly have learned a lot, and I think we're very inspired today. And if you ever needed to be in a courtroom, I know if I did, I'd want Sister Ruth sitting next to me. And my final thought about having Sister Ruth for all of us today is that beautiful line of the prayer of St. Francis. Sister Ruth certainly is that. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. So Sister Ruth, thank you so much for being with us today on Everyday Graces, everybody.